Let's do a, just a quick recap so we know where we left off last week. Does anybody remember we're in, the, we're in week three and we're looking at, at the beginning of the course, we're looking at the various ways that Christians have approached study of the end times, systems or, or um, categories through which Christians have read the Bible. And what was the one that we, the, main, the one we started, we did, a, we did an overview the first week where we covered all of the, the main, you might remember the main three ways that Christians have laid out the end times? Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Yeah, premillennial, post And we looked at last week a specific type of premillennialism. And anybody remember what it was called? Yeah, we looked at dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational pre-mill or dispensationalism. What 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 where does this name come from? You remember? Seven dispensations. Yeah, there's there's seven dispensations uh, that the Bible is broken up into according to the people that, that hold to this type of theology. And and those those are d- dispensation is a fancy way of saying periods of time in scripture where God tested humanity by and judged them by a certain standard, and every time Every dispensation, except for the last, ends in failure on humanity's part. That's another key component. If you read dispensational writings, if you go back and read John Nelson Darby, who we talked about last week, and you read the Schofield reference notes, they talk about every dispensation from the beginning ended in failure, thus the need for the next dispensation. And uh, four of the dispensations are found in Genesis, and then the, the one of the law, the dispensation of the law, is the whole Old Testament up to Acts chapter 2, and then the dispensation that comes after that is the one we're in now, the church age, and then the one that will come after that will be the, the, the kingdom, the final age. And what was one interesting feature that we talked about about dispensationalism as far as the nature of the church age? And, and, and what the church is and is not according to the Bible. Does anybody remember? There's a very unique phrase, and I, I read it and quoted it from Schofield and from Darby. Uh, it's a form of punctuation mark. Like this. Parentheses, yeah. That the church, in dispensationalism, the church is a divine parenthesis. Parenthesis, parentheses. I don't know which one's correct. I'll leave that to you. The church is a parenthesis in God's plan. Because according to dispensationalism, we looked at last week, God was doing stuff with Israel. In other words, made his covenant with Israel. And then Israel's history went. And then Messiah came on the scene, which is Jesus. And the point was Israel, throughout the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, the prophecies were Israel's Messiah would come, be a light to the nations, restore Israel's glory, um, spread knowledge of God throughout the world. Israel would be where all the nations flowed to. They'd live in safety in the land. All of these promises that you read in the prophets, well, what dispensationalists, beginning with guys like Edward Irving, John Nelson Darby, Cyrus Schofield, all of these early dispensationalists, what they realized was, hey, these promises that God made to Israel about ruling over the nations and dwelling safely in the land and all this stuff, these haven't happened. They didn't happen. Instead, 
uh, 70 years after Jesus came, give or take, Israel was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was just literally laid bare. And the Jews at the time of dispensationalism had been scattered ever since. And Israel was no more. So what dispensationalists saw in Scripture or, 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 or came up with, depending on your view of dispensationalism, was that the reason that that's promise, those promises hasn't happened is because there will be a future reign of Israel under the Messiah. In other words, God's promises are going to happen. But the reason that there was a break when Jesus came on the scene was because Israel, dispensationalists argue, rejected their Messiah. So what God did was he created, he put his dealings with Israel on hold, created the church, and the purpose of the church was to spread the knowledge of God to the world and uh, picking up on Paul in Romans 9 through 11 to, to make the, the Jews who had rejected Jesus uh, uh, jealous, as Paul says it, for God. In other words, to, to cause them to envy so that when, when Christ or when God's done drawing all the Gentiles to himself and, and the church and everything, he'll take the church out of the world because the promises, and this is another key uh, component of dispensationalism, the church was not only a parenthesis, but it was heavenly in nature. The church was never meant or spoken of by the prophets according to dispensationalism, period. Remember we talked about the prophets were, if you look at Tim LaHaye's chart of the prophets looking at the mountaintops of, of prophecy, and, and the church is down in a valley, as he puts it. In other words, the prophets of the Old Testament never saw the church. They only saw Israel. So that must mean that the church, in order for the promises to happen to Israel, like the prophets promised, the church can't be here. So if that's the case, then you have to find a way or see a way in Scripture that the church isn't here when all of those prophecies happen. Well, the way you do that is you have the church being raptured, taken up out of the world, up to their heavenly dwelling, where they'll reign spiritually, heavenly, with Christ, with God, while Jesus returns and reigns on earth with ethnic covenant seed of Abraham Israel for a thousand years. That's how dispensationalists view this. And all of this is based on what dispensationalists say is the right way to approach Scripture, particularly prophecy, is through adopting a reading of literalism as much as possible. Specifically, consistent literalism. As uh, LaHaye and, and Hal Lindsey and others, you can read. This is a huge component. The other key to dispensationalism is a separation between Israel and the church. What they say is, if you literally read the prophets, it talks about, and, and I think it's Tim LaHaye that says it, uh, it might be Hal Lindsey, but he says, when you read the Bible, Israel is always Israel, Jerusalem's always Jerusalem, Babylon's always Babylon. Take reference in prophecies literally 
That's how they were intended to be read. So if you look at the Old Testament passages, which we're going to do in the coming weeks, you're going to see prophets, prophecies about things like Mount Zion, about Jerusalem being elevated, about Jesus returning and splitting the Mount of Olives in half, and one foot on this side, one foot on this side. All of these nations flocking to Jerusalem, all of these things, well, dispensationalists are very insistent on those are literally going to happen. Yeah, and those are the people that the Bible says are going to do stuff are going to do stuff. And so that is the, that's, that's the underlying assumption that drives all of, of, of eschatology based on dispensationalism. And we talked about the, the sort of lineage, the main, the Schofield Reference Bible was the beginning of systematizing this. And that was in the early 1900s, I think 1901, but I can't remember exactly, I have to look in. Uh, the Schofield Reference Bible, which became the study Bible for uh, uh, generations of evangelical, conservative, fundamentalists, all of that. Yeah, then the Schofield Reference Bible, then um, Moody, Moody Bible College, uh, and also Dallas Theological Seminary. These were the, the ministry training schools that put out a number of prominent uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers and everything like that. Then the one in the 60s and 70s that came along uh, was Hal Lindsey yeah. and his late great planet Earth. Yeah. And then that most recently was revitalized by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins and the Left Behind books. This, this, is, this is sort of the lineage. And in this period of time, particularly, you had the rise of television evangelists and many television evangelists um, part of this reading of scripture is you know in order for Jesus to return the gospel has to be preached to all creation Mark 16 so that means let's launch some satellites because we need to reach everybody with the gospel if we do that and that that's that's the reason if you listen to um uh, TBN, uh, Crouch, Paul Crouch. If you listen to Paul and Jan Crouch, he's very upfront about this. You know, we have TBN, which is the biggest Christian broadcasting network, so that the gospel will spread, so that Jesus will return. It's a basic, basic question. What's the relationship to Jesus and Israel? And dispensationalists uh, have answered the question. If you look on page, this handout I gave you at the top of page 202, which is the second sheet, Actually, it's, sorry, two, page 201, the back of the first sheet. Yeah. I'll read this. This is from Craig Hill's uh, book, In God's Time. Yeah, In God's Time, The Bible in the Future. This is from the appendix at the end of his book. He says, the, the paragraph at page 201, The seedbed of dispensationalism was a series of conferences in the 1820s and 1830s on the subject of unfulfilled prophecy. Special attention was given to the unrealized expectation of Israel's glory found in the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Over the centuries, Christian interpreters have dealt with this issue in a variety of ways. For example, by asserting that God's promises to Israel were fulfilled spiritually in the church. That's one way some Christians proposed. Much of Darby's appeal, both then and now, arises from his insistence upon biblical literalism. Darby believed that the prophetic oracles concerning Israel must be fulfilled to the letter. Because this fulfillment has not taken place, the dispensation to Israel cannot be complete. But how can this be, since by Darby's own reckoning, we're already living in the next dispensation, the age of the Gentile church? Darby's solution is ingenious. The present age is really only a parenthesis, interrupting the age of Israel. 
Once the church is whisked off the scene at the time of the rapture, the dispensation to Israel will recommence and all remaining prophecies will be fulfilled. Hence, we discover the need for a two-part return of Christ. The first completes the dispensation to the church and the second to the dispensation of Israel. To their credit, dispensationalists had put their finger on an important problem, namely the relationship between Israel and the church and the plan of God. Their dissatisfaction with Christian supersessionism, and supersessionism is the view that says when Israel rejected the Messiah, God said, I'm done with you and I'm starting a new thing called the church. And, and all of the promises to you, I'm going to give to the church as spiritual realizations. That's supersessionism. Some people call it replacement theology. You'll hear that a lot. Uh, their dissatisfaction with Christian supersessionism is highly commendable, although their convoluted solution created as many difficulties as it solved. And we're going to look at some of those difficulties now regarding dispensationalism. It's the most popular and it's the most prominent view, but it's by no means the only view. And as we saw last week, it's relatively new. It arose in the 1820s and 1830s. It arose with the age of of um, the industrial revolution or scientific revolutions, modernism, dispensationalism, Schofield said in the preface to his Bible, we pick it up, he says, I'm presenting to you a very scientific way of studying the scripture systematically. And he uses that phrase. He was a lawyer. He, was, uh, um, he, he, he prided himself on the rational and, and the logical. So it's only, you know, what do you do? If you want practical, if you want logical, you take all the data and you chart it out. Scientists graph things in order to observe the data. Well, if you're going to study a subject like end times, eschatology, and it seems to be confusing or it seems to be convoluted, chart it out. Put it on a graph, and then eventually you come up with a system, which is what Darby did. So the first critique that opponents of dispensationalism, premillennials, amillennials, and postmillennials, have all leveled against it is, one, that it's new, recent. Um, it's, it's, if dispensationalism is true, it's a truth that God didn't reveal for 1850 years or so to his church. It's a truth that no church father ever saw or, or hinted at or, or understood. Darby and others, if and you read their writings, they, they recognize this and they say, uh, in this age, God has, has uh, either revealed or restored. They talk about, well, the apostles knew this and they wrote it down. And then the New Testament, and, and here are the study notes for it. And then the church, as the church apostatized, as the church fell away, as the church became less and less holy or, or, or stopped studying Scripture, it got away from this truth. So what dispensationalists say that they're doing is, is doing what the Reformers did. We're bringing the church back to the Bible. We're bringing eschatology back to Scripture. Opponents of it say if that's the case, then the church is filled with a righteous remnant throughout its history and interpreters and theologians and someone somewhere would have seen this, especially if Jesus' return happens in two stages rather than one. So that's a big critique. And it's one that, you know, something being new doesn't mean it's wrong necessarily. That's just logically, newness doesn't mean wrongness. But for Christians who, who, who stress the apostolic gospel, the gospel that Jude says was once for all entrusted to the saints, something new raises red flags. And for a lot of Christians, the majority of Christians around the world, when dispensationalism came on the rise, it raised a lot of red flags because of its newness. The other is that dispensationalists or non-dispensationalists have said, you know, unlike, say, Calvinism, or, or Arminianism, or, or Augustinian theology, or Thomistic theology. These are all <coughs> movements in church history. 
unlike those which began in theological and academic circles among biblical scholars, people wrestling with the original language texts and, and history and all that stuff, dispensationalism arose and caught on through popular and grassroots movement. In other words, there weren't biblical scholars who were, who were bringing this idea to the church. It were, there were churchmen, Darby, Schofield, others, not trained in theology, but trained in whether Schofield is some legal training uh, with others is, you know, degrees in various other studies. But n this, this is a view that didn't arise out of biblical scholarship, but yet it caught on uh, uh, out of proportion with its theological underpinnings, they would say. In other words, they'd say, uh, which dispensationalists would respond and say, well, that's just elitism. You know, you don't have to have a PhD to read the Bible. God's word is truth. You just take it literally and it's fine. And non-dispensationalists say, wait a minute, there's a lot of smart, gifted, Holy Spirit-filled people in biblical scholarship, and none of them are dispensationalists or, or, or helped create or come up with or, or foster dispensationalism. So that's the critique against it that people level is that it was a popular, it, it was a move among the people and it, and it caught on not through the, the theological circles in the church but through grassroots movements like the Correspondence Bible courses that Schofield put out like uh, Big Tent Revivals, um, Bible Colleges, things like that, Prophecy Conferences, that stuff. Uh, a third critique is that it breaks the second coming of Jesus into two stages. And that is the big one. It, you don't have in dispensationalism a simple or single or one-step return of Jesus. And that's what the church had most of all held for a long time. Premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. They all held when Jesus returns, he's going to do it once. And whether it comes before the millennium, after the millennium, or the millennium is not even to be considered because that in and of itself is a symbolic representation, Jesus' return is a one-time deal. He comes back once. Well, dispensationalists, like we said, they argue Jesus, and they will look at the passages, but they say, nope, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about Jesus returning partially. Jesus, and we have earth. And he comes partway, and the dead are raised, and the living with them are caught up in the air to be with the Lord. So, but then Jesus doesn't, then once he gets the believers, he takes them to heaven. In another text they point out is Revelation 4, where John says, I saw a door standing open in heaven, a voice said, come up here and I'll show you what must happen. They say that's a type of the rapture. So Jesus is then for a few years, in other words, the church is raptured, and then for a period of about seven years, which is, let's say, the tribulation, Jesus and the church are in heaven. Jesus' return return comes after the seven-year tribulation, and that's when he comes all the way back to earth as king in Israel. That's a crown. Go with it. Um, so Here, I'll put jewels in it. There you go. 
<laughs> there you go. That's a Burger King crown. So the idea, dispensationalism said, you know, Jesus, so all of these passages and on the handout that I gave you uh, where I quoted from Tim LaHaye on page 112 of his book, Charting the End Times, he has a list of the differences between the rapture passages and the second coming passages. So things like, you know, 1 John 14, Romans 8, 19, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Philippians 3, 20, 1 Thessalonians. These are all passages that talk about the rapture. And then other passages like Zechariah 12, 10, Matthew 13, Mark 14, etc. These are the second coming. So in other words, they, this, this event is divided in two. And they even have names. Um, the first event is the, the rapture is called the blessed hope. This is what believers are told to look towards, the blessed hope. And in that same verse, as we eagerly await for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus, they say the glorious appearing is his return. So they split it into two. We wait for the blessed hope, that's the rapture, and the glorious appearing. It's his return. Critics of dispensationalists have said, where in the world do you get the idea that Jesus comes back again and then goes back to heaven and then comes back again for good? Nowhere is Jesus' return spoken of in two stages. And, and the only place that you can get that from, possibly in the text is 1 Thessalonians 4, and then reading that into all the other texts. And we'll look at that in detail when we get to the text, but I'll give you an overview. Here's a handout. So Tim Lay in his, in, you know, I read about eight of his Left Behind books. Uh, he kind of goes to Secret Rapture, and, and it also seems like he shows a second chance, you know, because you know, people they left there, the captain and the stewardess and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, now dispensation have said, yeah, once the church is raptured, People are still going to get saved. In fact, every reference to believers or people that follow Jesus in the book of Revelation after chapter 3, the letter to the churches, refers to people who get saved during the tribulation and come to Christ. And it's a, it's a whole system about how that happens. And, and uh, so there's still a chance. But uh, you, you, can go to, uh, you can go to all kinds of websites that, that dispensationalists have set up that send letters after the rapture you know, if you don't log in at a certain time, after a certain time, the program assumes that you've been raptured and sends emails to all your friends telling them, hey, I've been raptured, this is real, believe in Jesus. You know, there's even one, there's a, there's a I, I kid you not, there's a website you can go and register that non-believers, non-Christians have set up that says, when you're raptured, we'll take care of your pets. Give us the information and we'll feed your cats and dogs when you're, I am not kidding you. Google that. It's amazing. The sheet that I gave out, everybody should have it. It looks like this. These are non-dispensationalists. Say, look, if you look at the sayings about the end, whenever Jesus talks about his return, whenever Paul talks about the return of Jesus, or whenever Peter talks about the judgment, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, they use all different imagery, but the imagery Unlike dispensationalism, dispensationalists who say it's contradictory, in other words, uh, Tim LaHaye says, 
when the 300 plus Bible references to the second coming, I don't know where you got 300, but when the 300 plus Bible references to the second coming are carefully examined, it becomes clear that there are two phases to Christ's return. These passages have far too many conflicting activities connected with his return to be merged into a single coming. In other words, and that's on page 52 of Charting the End Times, and he gives a list of differences. He says, the rapture, Christ comes in the air for his own. But in the glorious appearing, Christ comes with his own to earth. In the rapture, all of the Christians are raptured. In the glorious appearing, no one is raptured. Christians are taken to the Father's house in the rapture. Resurrected saints do not see the Father's house. I don't know where that. No, there's no judgment on earth in the rapture, but then Christ judges the inhabitants of the earth at the, blessed, or the glorious appearing. That's on page 112. It's in the handouts that I gave you that quote Tim LaHaye. Dispensationalists have said, look, when you have all these passages about the return of Jesus, the second coming, the details don't add up. Is he coming with his saints or is he meeting his saints? Is there going to be judgment of the wicked or the righteous vindicated? Is there going to... Because the underlying the interpretive grid through which all of those passages are filtered is that of literalism. If these passages are literally true, then if there's any difference in detail that we can't reconcile literally, we're going to split it into two stages. And that's the claim that dispensationalist Darby started it, and it's been championed most recently in Tim LaHaye's book. Well, non-dispensationalists, and, and the majority of Christians since then, have said that's, that's not the case at all. That's only the case if you press for wooden literalism in the details. But if you look at all of the passages as a whole, you get a picture that the the passages, if you, if you, and I've given you, I've only given you about eight or so here, but there, there are a lot more. But if you look at all of these, you realize that the, the, the events of the end or the coming of Jesus are the end of this age, the coming of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of the righteous, the judgment of the wicked, renewal of the cosmos, the reign of Jesus, and the destruction of death. All of those are talked about interchangeably in Scripture. Those references, what, what non-dispensationalists argue is they say they don't conflict. They only conflict if you impose a rigid literalism on apocalyptic and prophetic literature. Well, yeah, you're going to get. But, but there's, there are contradictions in every literal reading of apocalyptic work. For instance, has Jesus speaking, and then it says later it's a sword coming out of his mouth. Uh, it has him hair white as wool, but then later he's a rider on the white horse. He's this and that. One passage, he's a slaughtered lamb, but yet in the other, he's got feet like burnished bronze. How, how, do you, how do you make sense of all those? Well, the answer that Christians in general have held is you don't press the details for literalism. You take in the symbolism that the author was trying to convey, and you paint your portrait from there. Uh, dispensation have said, no, that's, that's ignoring the plain meaning of the text. So this, this handout is, and we'll look at, we're, we're just, I'm giving an overview because what we're going to do, remember, this, this first section of the course that we're in, we're just giving the main players on the scene, but we're going to look at these passages in detail. Like, for instance, 1 Thessalonians, we're going to look at that in detail, including the actual words that are used, the image that Paul's describing, and then we're going to see that in Josephus, who was shortly after Paul, but was writing about events that happened in the first century as well, Josephus gives us a, a an, an example of a coming king and people being caught up and going out to meet him. 
and, and gives us a perfect parallel to what Paul was talking about that his, first, uh, his Thessalonian readers would have picked up on. So we're going to see how all of these fit together, but that's one of the big critiques is that dispensationalists have to, because of they, are, they are bound by their literal reading of all of the scriptures, equally literal, or, or that they claim, then they're bound to create another coming of Jesus. A, a, a Jesus coming, not a second coming, but like a 1.5 coming. He, he gets partially to earth and then takes the church and then comes back seven years later. So, and that, that's not, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, that's what dispensationalism claims for itself. It's not a, a slight to say that two and a half comings or one and a half comings. Um, the other big thing about dispensationalism as popularly understood is the rapture is, it's, you'll hear it's referred to as a secret rapture. When it happens, if you've seen the movies, read the books, people are looking around like, where did my baby go? I have a crib and there's little baby clothes in it, but there's no baby. Or there's no, you know, how many of you have seen, or don't be afraid to raise your hand if you have, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. In case of rapture, this t-shirt will be unmanned. In case of rapture, this, everything will be unmanned. Uh, those were really popular, especially in the 70s, 80s, because you know, the idea is people aren't going to know what's going on because everybody just disappears. Well, when you look at, especially 1 Thessalonians, you'll see that it's anything but silent. Um, and when Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man, he's, it's anything but secret. So that's another critique that people have leveled against dispensationalism. The, the, the third one, or the fourth one rather, that, that's more foundational is, and this is a big one, the impossibility of consistent literalism among dispensationalists. How, how regardless of how strongly people like Tim LaHaye or Hal Lindsey or, or even back further Schofield or Darby, how, no matter how strongly they insist on a literal reading of Scripture, not all Scripture is equally literally read. A great case in point, I'll give you three examples. In Isaiah 13, verses 19, actually if you have a Bible, open it, open it up to Isaiah chapter 13. You hear a lot in, in, if you read Dispensationalist writings, if you read Late Great Planet Earth, if you read Charting the End Times, if you read this work, uh, Schofield Reference Bible, they'll make the claim, take prophecy literally. In the Bible, you know, cities are cities. Jerusalem is Jerusalem. Egypt is Egypt. Babylon is Babylon. So when it talks about future stuff that's going to happen, those are literal. Remember during the Operation Desert, Storm, Desert Shield, then Desert Storm, then the most recent uh, invasion of Iraq. Does anybody remember the, the emails that went around about Babylon? About how Iraq is Babylon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like all these details. I, I sent out a, a, a thing to the, in, when I was working here on staff, sort of a response to that. Because uh, a lot of people were asking, oh, you know, it, it says that, you know, the Garden of Eden was in Iraq. And Babylon was in Iraq, and Saddam Hussein was trying to rebuild the Hanging Gardens and, and, and the capital of Babylon, et cetera, et cetera. And the Bible said it would happen. So we need to watch out for Babylon because Revelation is all about Babylon, you know, come out of Babylon, you church. And you, so so there, there was this, this, among a number of dispensationalists, maybe not all, but among a number of them, very prominent, was the idea that Babylon is going to rise again. You know, the the the... the, the empire of godlessness known as Babylon is going to rise again based on literal readings of Revelation. It talks about Babylon. Well, look at Isaiah 13 and verse 19, starting in verse 19. Isaiah giving a prophecy against Babylon. All of chapter 13 is his oracle against Babylon. 
And Babylon, verse 19, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the pride of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. Nomad will not pitch his tent there, and shepherds will not let their flocks rest there. But wild animals will lie down there, and owls will fill the houses. Ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in the fortresses, and jackals in the luxurious palaces. Babylon's time is almost up. Her days are almost over. That was Isaiah talking about Babylon, actual Babylon. So a challenge against dispensationalist claims about the Babylon in Revelation, you know, Babylon's going to rise and rebuild. Isaiah just flat out says, it will never again be inhabited. I'm going to treat it like Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's interesting is since Isaiah's day, when Babylon was overthrown, it hasn't been resurrected since. When, when the Medo-Persian Empire came in and destroyed Babylon, they destroyed it. Babylon's not been a world nation, world power since then. So, again, is this to be treated literally? Or is New Testament prophecies about Babylon to be read literally? One of them has to be spiritualized. Or one of them has to be called prophetic hyperbole. The question is, which one? Well, well that, that's an example of one of the conundrums. The parallels in Jeremiah chapter 50. Verse 35 through 40 says the exact same thing. Babylon will never again be inhabited. Yet the New Testament author of Revelation sees all kinds of things happening to Babylon. So, again, you know, if you have to, if, if somebody's like, well, you better watch out for the Middle East because, you know, Babylon, the empire is going to rise again. <laughs> not according to Isaiah. Not according to Jeremiah. If you're pressing for literalism, let's be consistent. So that's a problem one of the problems, and there, there are elaborate ways that that's answered. The, another huge one, huge, Tim LaHaye has said that this verse lays out the entire scheme of world end times. Is Daniel chapter 9. Turn to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 is, is said to be the, the focal point or the, I don't know, I was like Cliff Notes version, but kind of like the, the skeleton sketch is a better word for it, that you can hang all the end-time prophecies on. So when you look at Daniel 9, and then you bring in Matthew 24, which we'll look at later, that lays it all out. And if you can correctly interpret those, then you can see where we are and what's going to happen, and you can sell a lot of books because people will buy them. Daniel chapter 9, this is, this is the passage starting in verse 24. Daniel gets his vision explained. He has a vision, first 20 verses or so. Then verse 24, uh, or back up, verse 23, so consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and the holy city to bring a, the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away injustice, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this, from the issue of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, will be, excuse me, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In some translations, it says uh, seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, 
and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Popularly understood, verse 27 is generally speaking about the Antichrist. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Uh, in other words, and, and, and weeks in Daniel. First of all, you're already getting away from literalism because dispensationalists, Schofield, Darby, all of them will say, those aren't weeks, they're, they're weeks of years. So groups of sevens are seven years. So week equals seven years. All right, that's something that all dispensationalists acknowledge. That's a bedrock truth. So there are 62 weeks declared from when the temple is said to be rebuilt. And then there are seven weeks after that. The idea is you have, Daniel said at the beginning, hey, 70 weeks until the end. All right? So, this is where charting and doing math helps. 70 weeks until the end. Now, from the decree to rebuild the temple, well, that goes out, there's going to be 62 weeks. All right? Then, after that, there's going to be another seven weeks. How many weeks does that equal? 62 plus 7? 69. So we're at 69 weeks. Now, if you calculate this out and do the, do the math, you get to, from the time to rebuild the temple, you get about 480-something years. You get right up until Jesus came on the scene. Um, the, all Christians have agreed this is a very, very, very precise messianic promise. So Daniel says, hey, you want to know when the Messiah is going to be on the scene? 62 weeks, 7 weeks. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. And it talks about verse 26, and, and uh, we'll have nothing, and the people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. All right? Then, verse 27, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Nine weeks, one week. That puts you at 70. <coughs> so the last week before the end is when this firm covenant will be made. He, whoever that is, will make a firm covenant. Well, if you do this, if you add this up, what you get is, six, <coughs> what dispensation will say is, Interpret this literally, taking into account that weeks means sevens. And they're right. Hebrew doesn't have a word for week. It just is the word seven. So there's 62 sevens and seven sevens. You interpret those literally. You read that that's, that's, we just takes us up to the time of Jesus and his crucifixion, his resurrection. No problem. The last week, however, this week doesn't begin until the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel which hasn't happened yet, according to dispensationalists. The middle of the week. Revelation. During the middle of the week, yeah. And that's where, you know, so this week, this last week, the last one before the 70, before it's all over, right? Whatever's going to happen has to happen in that 69th or that 70th week, because that's at the beginning. It said, this is how long until the end. That last week is when all of the tribulation and the Antichrist, and he makes a covenant with Israel, and then halfway through, three and a half years, he breaks it. 
which is what it says right here. Well, the only problem is between week 69 and week 70, we're going on 2,000 years. Yeah. You, 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 you have to, and you can read the, the study notes in, in dispensationalist teachings on this. They say there's a 2,000-year gap. There's a parentheses between these two because Israel didn't accept their Messiah. So God put his dealings with Israel on hold at the 69th week. And the 70th week won't begin until the church is done and taken out of the world. And God then restarts the prophetic stopwatch. These are all, I'm not making these, these are, I'm just quoting from dispensationalists and using their key words. The prophetic clock has started ticking. And the event that, that many of them in the 60s saw as starting this back up, this final week, Israel being a nation, 1948. Because the key prophecy that had to happen, according to the dispensational system, was Israel had to be back in the land so that they could rebuild the temple, so that the Antichrist could make a covenant and then break it, and all this stuff had to happen. And so in 1948, dispensationalists said, aha, the God's time clock has started again. We are near the end. And that's where you get all the, the fervor that came in the 60s and especially the 70s because once the clock started in 1948, it was basically going to be, reading in Matthew 24, that generation that Jesus would come back. Generation in the Bible, 40 years. 1948, 1988. That's why so many people were going crazy in 1988 thinking Jesus was going to return. It came, it went. Hal Lindsey revised his book, said generations 100 years. Don't know where that came from, but you know, you, you keep revising if, if things don't happen the way they, that you've said that they will. So that's a huge, but regardless of any of that, the fact that dispensationalists say in Daniel chapter 9, it, it lays it all out. Yeah, it lays it all out if you put a 2,000-year and counting gap in between week 69 and week 70. All right? So that's one very big strike against consistent literal interpretation. As Craig Hill says in the handout sheet I gave you, the, the um, summary of it, he says, it goes without saying, this is hard, anything but literal. The, the last and, and I think the biggest example of what critics of dispensationalism would call selective literalism is the book of Revelation. I'm getting ready to go down and teach Revelation in two weeks down in Georgia and uh, teach through the book. And it's been, it's amazing that, oh, where's page 43 of Charting the End Times, Tim LaHaye says, most literalist prophecy scholars believe that these letters, the letters in Revelation 2 and 3, these letters, the letters to the seven churches, apply to all the churches existing in that day and through the ages. And there are seven periods that they apply to. And they're generally given as approximately as follows. The letter to the church at Ephesus, if you read dispensational uh, commentaries and, and Schofield in his reference notes will say, Ephesus isn't written primarily to Ephesus. The Ephesian church that's being written about and spoken about by Jesus in Revelation, that's describing the apostolic church, A.D. 30 to A.D. 100. Then the letter to the church at Smyrna prophesies what would be known as the persecuted church, A.D. 100 to A.D. 313. After that, the letter to the church at Pergamos 
symbolizes or, or, or signifies the state church, A.D. 313 to A.D. 590. Then the letter to Thyatira, that symbolizes or predicts the papal church, the, the Catholic church, A.D. 590 to 1517. Then the church at Sardis is really representative of the Reformed church, A.D. 1517 to 1730. The Church of Philadelphia is written to describe the missionary church, A.D. 1730 to about 1900. And the Church of Laodicea is written to symbolize the apostate church, 1900 to question mark. Every dispensation, according to dispensationalism, ends in failure. The letter to the Church of Laodicea is a stern rebuke by Jesus. How Lindsay, Tim LaHaye, John Darby, these guys say, the Laodicea, that's the church we live in now, the apostate church. And it's going to end in failure where the church as a whole will be left behind because Jesus is going to rapture out his sheep and take them out of the world. So uh, to me, it's just baffling how a literalist reading can in any way, shape, or form be said to represent this. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying that this is wrong, per se. Regardless of what you think about the history of the church, I, th I think it's very, uh, well, I'll give you a handout later that gives you my thoughts, but regardless of what you believe, this is anything but literal. The, 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 the Revelation letters never said anything at all about apostolic, persecuted state, papal reform, missionary, or apostate churches especially throughout periods of history. So it's, it's the biggest critique by far against dispensationalism by non-dispensationalists is you can't be consistently literal in your interpretation. I want to touch on, in the last three minutes, two foundation, what, what, what non-dispensationalists would say. These are two, all right, so we've seen the critiques. These are kind of the problems that this system comes up against. Here are the here are two, not the two, but two of the big foundational errors that Darby and others since him have made. Two foundational errors. I'll do them in reverse order. One is the inability to account for fluidity in different events being described. So, for instance, like the handout that I gave you, what, what, what biblical scholars have said is, there's no, if, you, if you just put aside the idea that I have to literally read all of these things and flatten them out and iron out and, and there can't be any difficulties. If you, that's very, very Western, very Greco-Roman way of approaching the text. Whereas in the Hebrew Bible, much more fluid, much more comfortable with ambiguity, comfortable with holding two things in tension. It's reflected throughout the Hebrew Bible. Chronicles and, and, uh, Chronicles and Samuel both give an account of a census taken by David at the end of his reign. One says, God instilled it in his heart to do it. The other says Satan put it in his heart to do it. And both of those stand in the Bible. The, the Hebrew scholars and scribes never saw a reason to iron those out. The same event attributed to God in one, attributed to Satan in the other. That's ambiguity. <laughs> that's, you know, and, and that's one example. Proverbs, Hebrew wisdom was very comfortable and, and sort of relished putting two things that seemed in tension. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll become like him. Those Proverbs are back-to-back -back in the book of Proverbs, seemingly contradictory. Multiple, multiple examples of those. Um, Daniel's vision, he sees a giant statue, 
and it symbolizes four kingdoms. Then the very same thing he sees in other chapters, but it's symbolized by four beasts. Right? So it's multiple ways of looking at the same things everywhere in Scripture. If you, if you can't see this, then what you end up doing is what Darby LaHaye and others, you, you start to spot contradictions. And then you have to separate them out and you have to do all this. So the, the, the inability to account for the fluidity in different depictions of the same event is one of them. And, and on the hand I gave you that, that from Hill on page 203, he lists that and talks about it. The other big foundational mistake of dispensationalism is the total separation of Israel and the church. Christians have held different views and, and answered the question differently. How do Israel and the church relate? In Bible for the rest of us, as we have taken that, we spend some time when we look at the Old Covenant and the New Covenant on how this happens. But regardless of what you think about how God's going to deal with ethnic Israel from here on out or in the future, whatever, regardless of what you come to with that, what's undeniable, undeniable, is that the New Testament describes the church in terms that the Old Testament used to describe Israel. Everywhere. The New Testament describes the church, Jesus' followers, just like the Old Testament described Israel. In fact, the word congregation was the word used not to describe the church first, but to describe the gathering of Israel in the wilderness. Go get a concordance and look at all, every time you see uh, from the congregation of the sons of Israel or whatever. That, that word was then, in other words, the Greek word for church, ecclesia, didn't originate in the New Testament. It's the word that the Septuagint translated or used to translate the Hebrew word for congregation, assembly, group. In other words, Israel. Israel was called the church all throughout the Old Testament if you're reading the Greek Bible. Israel was called the ecclesia of God, the people of God. So the New Testament, and, and when you think about it, when you really read the Gospels and, and see Jesus' ministry, Jesus was very, very, very intentional about doing things that said to his hearers and his, his followers, hey, I'm reliving Israel's history. I am, I am creating Israel, the new Israel. And, I, and, and none of this goes against the scriptures that you and I have grown up with, says Jesus. He says, I don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I don't think I've come to replace Israel. And that's, the, that's what's funny is, is dispensationalist and supersessionist, replacement theologians, they both commit the same error, which is seeing Old Testament Israel and New Testament church as two different things. That God had his plan with one, and then he creates a new thing. Supersessionists, replacement theologians say, so what that means is he pushed aside the old thing and focused on the new thing, the church. And that's how a lot of the reformers and a lot of church fathers, as the church de-Judaized over the centuries, they just sort of said, well, God's done with y'all. He's working on the church now. All those promises he made to you, Israel, he's going to fulfill those, or he is fulfilling or has fulfilled those through this group of people called the church. You guys had your chance, you blew it. Well, dispensationalists came along and said, that makes God a liar. You know, he made promises to Israel. He's got to keep those promises to Israel. Nowhere does it say he's going to change the beneficiary of those promises. He's going to keep his promises that he made to the seed of Abraham. 
dispensationalists say, so God had his people in the Old Covenant. They rejected him. He didn't cast them away. He put them on hold. Created the new thing, the church. Now there's two peoples of God. If you do, uh, for instance, Beth Moore's study on the book of Daniel, she says, I believe there are two peoples of God. And she uses the Bible Knowledge Commentary, a, a dispensationalist resource, that talks about there are two peoples of God, the earthly people, Israel, and the heavenly or spiritual people, the church. So both views see Israel and the church as different. But what, what I and, and other premillennial, postmillennial, whoever would argue is that's not what the New Testament does. The New Testament says all the promises that were made to, let's see, Abraham's seed, and that Hebrew word is the same word. Sometimes you'll see it's about offspring. Zerah, in the Hebrew word, it's, it's a collective, plural, like sheep. There's singular and plural. One sheep, 50 sheep. It's the same thing. One seed, 50 seed. All the promises that were given to Abraham's seed, Abraham's offspring, and who later became identified as the guy Jacob, or Israel, you had a name change, this was originally a single person. Israel was a guy. Israel wasn't always a nation. Israel was a man. Then Israel got expanded to include uh, all of his descendants, 12 tribes of Israel, right? No problem seeing Israel as a singular. Now it's a collective, the nation of Israel. And then God made a promise that within that nation of Israel, he would, in order to bring about what he was going to do, he would take one, or one, he would rule through the line of David, and that, they would sit on the throne, et cetera, et cetera. So the, what the Old Testament presents this as, as this is what Israel was chosen for, the chosen people of God. God goes out of his way to tell through the prophets, I didn't choose you as a nation because I like you better because you're inherently better than the other nations. In fact, the book of Jonah is a one entire book dedicated to showing Israel's not God's favorite because of anything about them. God over and over and over says, I'm keeping my promises to you because I made a promise to Abraham. And I'm keeping my promise to Abraham. And the promise was that Abraham's offspring. And throughout the Old Testament, God distinguishes between his true people and those who claim to follow him but run after other gods. And that's called the remnant. In other words, within Israel, the ethnic national people, there's a righteous remnant that God preserves. Even when the rest of the visible nation goes astray, he has his remnant. What the New Testament basically shows throughout all the Gospels and the letters, the epistles, and, and especially in Revelation, is that all of these were summed up and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Not in the church as an organization, not in a new group of people, not in ethnicity, not in anything, but Jesus as Messiah, as the seed of Abraham. Paul goes out of his way in Galatians to say it was the seed of Abraham, Jesus. He is the fulfillment. In him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Jesus is 
the new Israel. And then you start to see, oh, that makes sense. There's a reason he chose 12 followers. There's a reason that he crossed through the Jordan River. There's a reason that he spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. There's a reason that he created bread in the desert. There's a reason that he was called my beloved firstborn son, which was first applied to Israel in Hosea. All of these things start to make sense, and the New Testament says it's all Jesus. And how are believers differentiated from non-believers in the New Testament? Believers are in Christ, in Jesus. Non-believers are not in Christ. Just like in the Old Covenant, Israel, you could have people who weren't part of Israel, people who were part of Israel. Jesus as the new Israel, in Christ or not. And so, there's no clearer statement of this than Ephesians chapter 2. So, flip to Ephesians. Do this sometime if you really want to see this like in a, in a visually representative way. Go through Ephesians with a highlighter and highlight every time the phrase in Christ, in Jesus, in Him, or in the Lord appears. And your, your Bible will be polka dotted almost because it's, it's everywhere in there. The whole book of Ephesians is about Jesus as the summation of the people of God. Listen to what, what Paul says. Now Paul's writing to a largely Gentile community, but planted by Jewish believers in the most prominent city in Asia Minor, a very cosmopolitan city that he's writing to. It could be like writing to New York or Los Angeles. Paul's talking about the Ephesian church, Jew and Gentile. This is what he says in chapter 2, starting in verse 11. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were called, quote, the uncircumcised by those who were called, quote, the circumcised. Talking about Jew and Gentile which is done by hand and hands in the human flesh. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, with no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, But now, in Jesus the Messiah, or Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For He is our peace, who made both groups one, both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In the temple, in, in the Jewish temple, there, there was a court of the Gentiles and then the inner part of the temple, right? And there's a sign over the, the wall that separated them. It said, Gentiles, do not enter on pain of death. If, if Gentiles entered into the courts of the temple, they would be killed. Just that, that's straight history. Paul alluding to this. Jesus tore down that dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, verse 15, he did away with the law and the commandments and regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in how many bodies? One body through the cross, and put the hostility to death by it. When Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, 
But fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And the whole building is being fitted together in him and growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for God's dwelling, which is the word for tabernacle, in the spirit. You can't get clearer that there are not two peoples of God ever than this. Galatians 3, Romans 9 through 11. It's, it's, it's undeniable New Testament theology that what God did was combine Jew and Gentile into one new body, and he did it in himself, in Jesus. And so because of Jesus, whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, whether you're slave, whether you're free, whether you're male, whether you're female, you're all what? One in Christ. It's, it's so repeated throughout the New Testament. It's a major, major theme in the New Testament, in Jesus' life, in the letters, in the book of Revelation. It's everywhere. So what I think, as someone who's not a dispensationalist, and, and I have dispensationalist friends who I love, I respect. If, remember, like I said, week one, this is an in-house debate, not at salvation on the line, but this is the fundamental weakness or problem with the view of theology called dispensationalism, is you end up with two peoples of God, two returns of Jesus, based on a literalist reading of the Bible in all places. And, and I don't think that can stand. You end up denying a key tenet of the New Testament, one of the foundations of the New Testament, in order to uphold a system of theology that's 150 years old. Right now, if nothing else, you're getting a feel for the breadth of views and, and the problems that are raised now, we're going to critique. I'm going to critique all of the, uh, the other ones, too. We'll, we'll look at historic premillennialism, some problems they have to answer. We'll look at amillennialism, problems they have to answer. And next week, postmillennial and preterism, problems they have to answer. So, no view is without problems. It's just the nature of, of biblical interpretation. Let me give, uh, just got a few minutes, and I want, to, I want to mention, these are some dangers that have manifested because of dispensationalism. Now, again, I want to clarify. It doesn't mean that all dispensationalists do these things or believe this way or anything like that. I'm not making a statement about the character, the faithfulness, or anything like that of individual dispensationalists. What I'm doing is saying these are, every theology, every belief has consequences. These are some historic consequences that have come from an, uh, 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 an adherence to this form of theology. The first one is... All, almost all of the date setters, people saying Jesus, 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 88, the majority of them have been led to that by consistently, literally reading the Bible and saying, temple is going to be destroyed. I mean, excuse me, Jesus is going to return within one generation of when Israel's gathered back into the land. Well, that happened in 1948. Be literal. One generation from 1948, Jesus is returning. Okay, now not all dispensationalists are date setters. In fact, many of the most vehement anti-date setters, the ones who tell you don't try to predict it, 
are dispensationalists. They say, you don't know when the rapture is going to happen. Just be ready. And that's commendable. But that is a danger is, is the temptation to set dates. If you can chart and judge by world events how close we are to the return of Jesus, you may not be able to say the day and the hour, but you, you might take a stab at giving the year. So it's, it's, a, it's a temptation they face. The other is dispensationalist has a 100, well, I shouldn't say that, has a very high percentage of failed prophecies. Not 100%, but, but well, because some things, I mean, you can't tell how they're going to pan out. But a high percentage of predictions that did not come to pass. How many people remember the, the, the Soviet Russia was going to be, you know, this and that? Um, that Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist, right? Yeah. That all of these things, so, so the, the, on the back of your syllabus, or at the end of your syllabus, all the links that I gave, websites and everything, there's one where, or, where the author took Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth, and said, here, here is every prediction that can be definitively verified through history, where Hal Lindsey said, watch the newspaper, this is going to happen. Here's every single time, and here's every single time that didn't happen. And here's how, since then, he's had to revise everything. And, and the, the, the often repeated point is, books on prophecy should never have a second edition. <laughs> In other words, yeah. it's either right or just say you were wrong. Uh, but, or, or a revised edition, I should say. Yeah. Um, so that's another, is, is the litany of failed predictions. The other one, I think the biggest one, the belief in two peoples of God. And as a result of that, how we view political events colors our interpretation of, of how we read the Bible. So if we view America as inherently good and on God's side all the time, then of course when we read about like the Antichrist or the, the Whore of Babylon or any of these things, we're not going to put America in that category. Yet when Christians in other countries read that, a lot of times they say, oh, that's Probably America. Except when a Democrat is president. <laughs> exactly. If you're a Republican, the Democrat is the candidate for the Antichrist. If you're a Democrat, it's the Republican. Yeah. George Bush and Obama have both been the Antichrist, right? Like, we hear it so much. But political events color how you interpret the Bible. And if anybody wants, I can give you, I can send you some emails of, of how that's played out in the media. The other is countries, we start to see countries as enemies and take a good guys versus bad guys mentality. Right, Brian mentioned, if you see ethnic national state of Israel, the country that's over in the Middle East right now, as the Israel of the Bible, the Israel of God, yeah. you're not going to want to oppose what they do. I think You'll that's be... the chief reason for the his history of our yeah. foreign policy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You, can, you can go through it. And let me give you a guy who's, who's done the most research. This um, Steve Sizer, he's not popular with dispensationalists. He's, this is, a, this is um, his book, Zion's, Christian Zionists on the Road to Armageddon. This is a free ebook. You can download this for free. I, I did that. I just downloaded it and printed it out. Um, this is on his website. On Steve's, just Google Stephen Sizer or go to stephensizer.com. But what he has done, and he works mostly with Palestinian Christians who are the forgotten children of the Middle East, he argues. And he said, look, there's more than just biblical interpretation going on. When you have a president whose who's advisors are people like John Hagee, Jack Van Impey, you know, these people have the ear of the president. It explains why America, not all, but many Americans have been staunchly supportive of the nation of Israel. They're God's people. The Bible says, those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. We better bless Israel if we want to be blessed by God. 
So regardless of right or wrong, regardless of your politics, whether you lean left, whether you lean right, dispensationalism gives you sort of a, you pretty much only have one way to act towards Israel. And that's, if you're going to critique, at least be very mild in your critiques, be very veiled, um, but preferably stand with them whenever you can. And what we see, what's interesting to me is in the Old Testament, the nation that God is most critical of is his own people, is Israel. Um, so it, it, it's one of the dangers. Uh, Steve Sides has documented and written the most on it. Zion's Christian Soldiers is his other book that follows it, traces where this, you know, the, the reason that Christians are supporting uh, Israeli troops who bulldoze Palestinian houses so that Jews from Russia can move in there is because of what they believe the Bible teaches about Israel. Now, however you view that situation politically, whether you're in favor of Israel being able to exist there or not in favor, not even getting into that, um, if you're supporting a political nation because they are supposedly God's on their side, Jesus has everything to say against that. And that's a very, very, very big danger. Ben Witherington on his blog, uh, I'll give you the link if you email me, but he, he, does, he posts a video to the Friends of Israel conference with John Hagee and other guys. And, and, and you know, you've, you've got John Hagee up there saying, hey, Let's, we need to bomb Iran because they've said they're going to attack Israel. So we need to get them out of the way because they, I mean, flat out saying, let's bomb Iran. Um, there's another quote. Here's on, in Craig Hills. I'll read this one. He says, uh, he says, one of the quirkiest passages, this is on the last page. He says, one of the quirkiest passages in the whole of the Tim LaHaye canon is the following, taken from a discussion of Ezekiel 38 and 39. This is from Tim LaHaye's book, um, are we living in the end times? Tim Lahey says, It does not seem as if time is on Russia's side. If she is going to be the major power that Ezekiel forecasts her to be, she had better make her move soon or she won't be able to do so. If Russia is to attack Israel, she had better do it soon. Um, and so anyway, it just shows you the political implications of a theological system. The last one is, or, or the second to last one is, that dispensationalism by default relegates the Old Testament to almost irrelevant for the life of the church because the church wasn't seen by the Old Testament prophets. So, in other words, the Old Testament had no idea that there would be a thing called the church. Well, at Pentecost, what did Peter cite as his explanation of what was going on? He cited Joel, the prophet, who says, this is what Joel was talking about when he says, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. So Peter felt very much that the Old Testament prophets saw the church, saw the people of God, the new covenant. You can read Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, all these passages um, that, that, that dispensationalists by definition say don't talk about the church. The last one is what rapture can, what the idea of the rapture specifically can lead to, doesn't always lead to, but can lead to and has led to in the past is Christian escapism. I'm giving you two letters. One is by Ruth Graham. The other is by Corey Ten Boom. What, what the gist of the letters talk about is both Ruth and Corey said, look, we, what, what's happened, especially in China, you know, Ruth, Ruth Graham's uh, parents were missionaries to China, and uh, is that there was this mass evangelism and, and dispensationalists 
are, are zealous for evangelism, which is a good thing. And, you know, trying to warn people about the imminent rapture and danger and all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the byproducts was Christians in China were told repeatedly, come to faith in Jesus, the rapture's coming, but you're going to be spared. You won't go through the tribulation. And what happened was the Christians in China did go through a lot of tribulation and weren't prepared for the suffering. And because of that, a lot of people were told, you're not going to suffer if things get bad. Things got bad. They said, to heck with you. You promised that, you know, this is all false. And, and it really ended up having ramifications for the gospel. That Corey's uh, letter talks about that and her time being living through a Nazi concentration camp. Uh, her sister died in it and all of this stuff. She talks about tribulation. And the gist of both letters is basically, hey, we'd love to be wrong. I'd love to prepare for tribulation and prepare for suffering and not have to go through it. Like the rapture is the doctrine that I most want to be wrong about. Because it means, you know, I won't have to suffer. Who doesn't want that? But both of them have said, uh, I, I'll read from Ruth's letter, second paragraph, said, I was talking recently with an elderly missionary from China who told me that her greatest regrets now are not having prepared the Chinese Christians for the tribulation they would undergo. She said in her years in China, she went everywhere teaching the pre-tribulation rapture and getting Christians to believe that they would not have to suffer for the Lord in that sense. The, quote, great tribulation may absolutely stagger the imagination but still there's only so much one person can suffer. What she meant by that was, look, tribulation's tribulation. It's here, it's now, and some of the worst things in the history of the world Christians have gone through, and to this day are still going through. You know, we like to think that the church doesn't experience tribulation, but that's because we live in a part of the world where the church doesn't experience tribulation. But the church is one body with many members. If one member suffers, all members suffer. So when Christians around the world are suffering persecution, the church is being persecuted. Uh, and, and so I wanted to give you those two letters because they both, from prominent conservative evangelical figures, talk about the danger representative of dispensationalist theology.